Let's reopen our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, where we were when we ended a little while ago. Matthew chapter 7, and those haunting words that are truly the worst words that can be spoken in the universe, when the Lord Jesus Christ will profess unto many, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Matthew 7 and verse 23. The passage should not frighten you, and you should not dislike the words being in the Bible. You should be thankful for them, because it is how Jesus Christ treats false prophets. It's how Jesus Christ treats those who want to appeal to their religious good works and say nothing about sin, salvation, or works of righteousness. You can keep yourself from this category of persons by doing the will of your Father which is in heaven, which will is plainly listed in a number of things you can do in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, because that's what verse 21 teaches us. Another thing you can do is to always be looking to the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation rather than your good religious works. Once you have placed all your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, knowing that you are a sinner and willing to admit the same, like the Apostle Paul, who said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You start there, then you can say with Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Notice, he didn't appeal to casting out devils, did he? He didn't appeal to just preaching. He appealed to putting up a fight, the good fight of faith, which is fighting against sin and the lust of your flesh. These men call upon the name of the Lord and just refer to their religious works, not having kept the faith. They don't care about truth. That's why they're false prophets. Not having finished their course, they never were given a course, nor did they finish it. And so there's a, there's great differences made here from the righteous. These verses are not to threaten the righteous. These verses are to tell the righteous what will happen to these false prophets that are mentioned very plainly in verses 15 through 20. If you will look at Matthew 5.20 with me very quickly, you will find that there is a great difference between the righteous and the wicked, even in this Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Those men that would appeal to their religious works did not practice righteousness. Verse 19 is very important for us to appreciate because it says, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, that is, the least of these commandments, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let's take an example of that. Verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ here is identifying an error of the Pharisees in interpreting and applying the word of God. Notice, Jesus did not say, it is written, thou shalt not kill. He is not appealing to the Bible. He is appealing to the false teaching of the Pharisees that limited the sixth commandment to actually taking a physical life. Jesus is going to, has said, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. You have heard that it is Jewish tradition Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, he is not contradicting the Old Testament. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, is as true in Matthew 5 as it was in Exodus 20, and as it still is in Romans 13. He is correcting the way they have heard it 
by oral tradition from the rabbis. The rabbis limited it to the overt act of murder. But Jesus expands it back to where it belongs by saying, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you have broken the sixth commandment. If you call your brother raka or worthless, you're in danger of the council. If you call your brother a fool, again, without a justifiable cause, you'll be in danger of hell fire. Now see, this is the Lord Jesus Christ taking something as small as anger without a cause, calling someone worthless or calling them a fool without a justifiable cause, that being a violation of the Sixth Commandment. So, here you have a situation. Do you want to have righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? They limited themselves when they read the Sixth Commandment from Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 to the overt act of killing a person. But if you will guard your anger so that you will not be angry and sin, you can be angry and sin not, according to Ephesians chapter 4, then your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. This is not difficult. You are not in Matthew seven twenty one through 23 if as you go down through these, you guard yourself. You know, they said that the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, in verse 27 was the overt act only. But Jesus expanded it back out to being the lust of your eyes and the lust of your flesh for another woman where you would contemplate adultery with her as breaking the seventh commandment and using divorce laws to get yourself a different spouse was violating the seventh commandment. And so Jesus explains that. So if you fight the good fight of faith, by fighting those thoughts that arise from the lust of our eyes and the lust of our flesh, then your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You are not in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And if you read and hear the sayings of Jesus Christ that are in these three chapters, and you do them, then remember, you've built your house upon a rock, and when the storm of the great day of judgment arrives, your house will stand. Those who don't want to keep the sayings of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when the storm arises in verse 27, the house will fall, that is, their lives will fall, and great will be the fall of their lives. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus was different than the common preachers of that day. Very different. They watered the word of God down and confined it to where thou shalt not kill was only physical, literal murder. They took thou shalt not commit adultery down to only literal, physical adultery. Jesus opened them back up again, showing us his righteousness. And that's the way I hope that we're living. That is the way that we should be living. And we're not in Matthew seven twenty one through 23. There's no one trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. They're only trusting in themselves, and they're quick to want to verbalize that, that they're only trusting in themselves. You put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll never be confounded when you meet him. The Bible says that. You put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll never be ashamed. And the Bible says that as well. Turn with me now to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, what we are doing is dealing with some difficult texts in the Bible that some have used to teach that you can lose your salvation. And we know that Jesus said he would not lose one of those the Father gave him to save. He said that in John 6, John 10, John 17, and of course, Paul wrote about it often in places like Romans and Ephesians and Second Timothy and so forth. In this situation, what we have here and allow me to not maybe give as much explanation as you would like so that I can cover a few more before we close for today. This is the unpardonable sin. There is an unpardonable sin described in the Bible by the Lord Jesus Christ. The situation is that Jesus has healed a deaf and dumb man by casting a devil out of him. And all the common people realized that there was great power at hand. And if you read the other gospel accounts, 
they say about this particular event, surely this man is the son of David. Surely this is our Messiah because of the demonstrable, visible demonstration of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to cast out devils. The Pharisees, when they heard the common people giving Jesus credit as the Messiah of God, they retorted by saying, He's possessed by a devil, and he's casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. I read to you, Jesus had a longer explanation, but I want to get right to the unpardonable sin. I read to you at verse 38. Jesus has already explained above that, that their ideas are ridiculous and contrary to reason. That a house divided against itself or a city divided against itself cannot stand. And Satan is wiser and smarter than any house or city that you're going to have in this world. And therefore his house is not divided. I would not be casting out the devil by the devil. And if you want to figure that out and prove it to yourselves, he said, why don't you go check out your own gypsies and figure out how they cast devils out? He said, but if I cast them out by the Spirit of God, then no doubt the finger of God is here and the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verse 28, Verily I say unto you, Now who is he speaking to? He is speaking of these blasphemers that accused him of being possessed by the devil. Verse 22, He hath Beelzebub. He's possessed of the devil, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. Verse 28, Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because, they said, he hath an unclean spirit. The unpardonable sin is someone in the presence of the demonstrable power of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of God casting out devils and to accuse Jesus Christ of being possessed by a devil instead of operating by the power of the Holy Ghost. Jesus will say in the other passages in the Gospels that every form of blasphemy against the Son of Man can be forgiven. The Apostle Paul missed the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not know that he was fighting the Son of God when he was persecuting Christians. The Apostle Paul caused people to blaspheme. He says so in a couple of different places. But he wasn't guilty of this crime. He didn't stand there with these Pharisees. Jesus is directing his words, his words of condemnation, to a very specific group of people. And these are the leaders of the Jews in the presence of the visible power of Jesus Christ to cast out devils that he was possessed of the devil. And the only way he could cast them out was by the devil. This is the unpardonable sin. Our fathers in the faith and I, understanding this passage, you can't even commit the sin. Because you can't be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ when His power is visible, when everyone knows that the power of God is there and that the Messiah is being proven and having men accuse Him of being possessed by the devil. When was the last time any of you had a wild thought that Jesus was possessed by the devil? You're not in this situation. Jesus is making a statement similar to this one in Matthew 23, 20, 33. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? These wicked men that were blaspheming him so terribly by accusing him of being devil-possessed, he is just turning it around. He's putting himself aside, just like he did in the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he will say in Matthew and the other places where this event is described, that any blasphemy against the Son of Man is forgivable. But what you guys just did is unforgivable. He was basically telling them, you're all on your way to hell because you have just ascribed the power of the Holy Ghost to the power of the devil. The unpardonable sin. You know, I could say a great deal more about it, 
What is blasphemy against the Holy Ghost? It's being an eyewitness to the miracles of Jesus Christ and knowing the power of God was present. That's exactly how it's stated in the Gospels. But charging Jesus Christ with possession by the devil and working miracles by His power rather than through the Holy Ghost. The most important verse is the 30th. That's why we're using the Mark passage. Because they said, He hath an unclean spirit, accusing Jesus of being possessed by the devil. Look at the context. You know, how can we be guilty of this sin today? We're not there in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't see the visible demonstration of His power. We don't see Him cast a devil out of a person to where the deaf and the dumb both heard and spake. Can't see it. Can't do it. We can't be in this exact situation. And so we look at this passage as a passage that, yes, it's unpardonable, it's unforgivable, but it was to a very specific audience for a very specific crime, and the crime being, Jesus is devil-possessed by men who are doing it to stop the common people who have already recognized this is the power of God. You haven't been there. You can't do this. You can't fulfill this just the way it's described in this context. And listen, I want to tell you something. If you want to accuse the Lord Jesus Christ of being devil-possessed, you're not going to worry about the assurance of eternal life anyway. Matthew chapter 13. If you want more on any of these points that I'm hurrying over a little bit now, the outline will be on the internet in the next few hours. By the grace of God, it's 23 pages, single space long, and you can look at fiery dart number 12 about the unpardonable sin. But let's come over to Matthew chapter 13. And a question that is raised here is, I may be a tear that the devil has sown in the church of the wheat. And it's Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, and verses 36 through 43. So when you read this, the apostles came to the Lord Jesus, the servants, the angels, came to God and said, look at what's happened. We planted wheat in this field, and now there are tares. Look at these weeds. What happened? And God says, the devil has sown them. Well, then let us go in and rip them out. No, because in ripping them out, you might rip up some of the wheat. Wait until the end of the world. He doesn't want his ministers to try to do it all the time. Wait till the end of the world, then I'll send forth the reapers, and they'll be able to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the wheat and the tares. And you know, a child of God comes along, a sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ reads the passage in Matthew 13 and fears that they might be a tare because they look at the terminology that tares look a lot like wheat. And they think, I just might look like a child of God and I'm actually a tare. If you fear that you're a tare... Do you know how you can get over it today? Repent of your worldliness and run to the Lord Jesus Christ for safety. Tares never do that. Only wheat do that. Tares never. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are truly seeking righteousness, you cannot be a tare. You are wheat. The tares are the children of the devil which have no righteousness at all and love sin and which hate the Lord Jesus Christ and His people. If that's not true of you, then you're not a tear, and you shouldn't worry about it. Wicked men will get into the church, but even Christ's ministers can generally spot them, and even good church members can generally spot them, and the angels certainly can. They have the fruits described in the rest of this outline as dead rebels against God. No wheat's going to be lost, no tares are going to be saved, and there's no fine line here at all. The righteous will be saved, the wicked will be rejected. Why is the judgment reserved until the great day of judgment? Because some carnal wheat look like tares. Not because tares look like the righteous. If you measure things the way that we have learned in the last seven weeks of how the Bible sets a great difference between the righteous and the wicked, tares don't look like the righteous. But sometimes the righteous, when they're carnal, look like the tares. And so how do you get over that? You make a difference between you and the world. You make a difference between you and sinners. You make a difference between you and professors. 
You have a life. You have the work of faith. You have the labor of love. You have the patience of hope rather than just the faith, love, and hope. You have fruits at, you have works added to your faith and you have fruits to your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The danger of weeding out the tares early was due to the similarity at times that carnal and weak Christians, the wheat, have to them. The tares will all be damned, but even carnal wheat will be saved. But we don't ever want to be carnal wheat because the more carnal we are as wheat, the more we look like a tare. And we could be a tare, and we don't want to be. There are similarities at times between carnal Christians and reprobates, but there's never real confusion between spiritual Christians and reprobates. Do you understand me when I say that? Carnal Christians and reprobates, yes. Spiritual Christians and reprobates, no, there's a great difference between them. There is a message of mercy in the parable toward the wheat. Not a threat of being condemned. What's the parable for? The parable is a message of comfort. I'm not going to send the reapers into that field yet in case they might root up some wheat. I'm going to give the wheat a chance to look a little bit more like wheat before I send them in. Listen, it's comfort. It's not scary. Do you understand? The, the passages, I got to, I want to save the wheat. So I'm not going to let men get in there and think that they can tear them out. I'm going to keep them until the angels know the difference. But do you know what we all ought to be doing with this parable? Making sure that we look like wheat. And while I'm trying to comfort you, I don't want to spend all my time on comfort. I want to convict us that we all look like wheat. And we make the difference between us and the world greater and greater. We make the difference between us and reprobates greater and greater. Us and false professors greater and greater by choosing righteousness and loving it and hating and repudiating sin. And the more you purify your life, the more you know that you're no tear. The tear doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. What does the Bible say about tares in Psalm 10.4? God is not in all their thoughts. Psalm 10.4. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15. Do you know these words? And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I just don't think my name is in the book of life. We'll stop thinking about it and do something about it. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15 is a scary verse. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. When I was once in that form of doctrine that believed that salvation depended upon my decision for Jesus, this verse was the most frightening verse in the Bible to me out of the 31,101 verses in the Bible. Because I reasoned this way. My faith is so weak, and my decision for Jesus was so weak, the first one being at the age of three, I just can't see God bending over in His throne and writing my name in the book of life. That's because I had been taught that there's a new name written down in glory when we invite Jesus into our hearts. See, I used to sing a song, there's a new name written down in glory. But there are no new names written down in glory. Every name that is in the book of life, according to Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, was written there before the foundation of the world when God chose the people that Jesus Christ was going to save. But leaving that aside, it's a scary verse. And whosoever, you want another whosoever? Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And this lake of fire, according to verse 14, is the second death. Your first death is a picnic. The second death is body and soul in hell forever. The first death is just the death of this body, although there are other deaths in the Bible. The death of our spirit, we're dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. That was the death that Adam and Eve found the day they ate the fruit thereof, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But listen, Revelation 20. Before you get to Revelation 20, 15, you've got to come to Revelation 20 and verse 6. So let's read 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. Thank you, Lord. We have found a text. The second death of the lake of fire of verses 14 and 15 has no power upon those that have part in the first resurrection. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, 
and shall reign with him a thousand years. That sounds like Revelation chapter 5. Now what is the first resurrection? We've been there. It's John chapter 5, where there are two resurrections compared by the Lord Jesus Christ. The first resurrection is Jesus calling us into life spiritually, and the second resurrection is Jesus calling our dead bodies into life from the grave. John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. So the first resurrection is being born again. So all you have to do is prove that you're born again. The second death has no power over you. Because of this text right here, Revelation 20 and verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. So we back up. We go to this, John wrote the book of Revelation, which was given to him by Jesus Christ. We come back to 1 John chapter 2, and we look at verses like this. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29. If ye know that he is righteous... Ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So if we're born of God, then we have been part of the first resurrection. The second death has no power over us. We go to 3.9, and that's where we were this morning. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. We don't habitually live in sin or have a worldly, sinful lifestyle, for that's evidence that we're not born again. If we don't have evidence that we're born again, then that must be we have not taken part in the first resurrection. Therefore, the second death has power over us. It's backing up to look at the evidence of those that are truly born again. Look at chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. If you will love the brethren, and it will be a labor of love, you can show that you're born of God. If you're born of God, you were in the first resurrection. If you were in the first resurrection of being born again, you're not going to be subject to the second death of the lake of fire. We can come, we can go to other places in John. We can come over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul lists some people by name because he knew their names were in the book of life. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, Philippians 4, 3, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Now there Paul knows that some of his fellow laborers' names were in the book of life. And we come back and what... Where are we told something to be able to have such confidence in this same epistle? We come to chapter 2, verses that I've referred you to today already. Verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God has worked in us both to will. We, he has put in us the desire to choose the things of God. And He has put in us the ability to do the things of God. And we should be working that out. And as we do so, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Every bit of righteousness that you can show in your life or that you can have in your life, you'll never fall. When we went to 2 Peter chapter 1 and it says, If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. How many of those that do these things will experience the second death? If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. How many that do those eight things will ever experience the second death? None of them. It's impossible. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. So we ought to make our calling and election sure. The first resurrection and the second resurrection are compared in Revelation chap- John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. 25 is Jesus resurrecting men spiritually. Verses 28 and 29 is Jesus resurrecting men's physical bodies from the grave. Okay, someone will say, I, I agree with you about that. Um... But I think that I have sinned in my life in such a way that God has blotted my name out of the book of life. Okay, do you have a verse for it, sheep? And I mean that respectfully. Yes, they said, I found this in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. 
Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. See? Revelation 3, 5. I think I'm one of the ones that God has blotted their names out of the book of life. Little sheep. Will you just hear this one point, little sheep? The text says he won't blot your name out of the book of life. Why are you reading it backwards, little sheep, and saying that he is going to blot your name out of the book of life? Well, I'm not much of an overcomer. Then be an overcomer. Are there some that have their names in the book of life that aren't overcomers? Do you need some names? Was Lot an overcomer? Was Samson an overcomer? Was Solomon an overcomer? Are there names in the book of life? The Bible says they are. What is Revelation chapters 2 and 3 all about? It is encouraging seven churches to all be overcomers. Every single church gets the lesson. To he that overcomes, I will do this or that. And in this particular church, when if there will be overcomers at this church, he'll be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. That's just a confirmation and an encouragement to be an overcomer. If a name is blotted out of the book of life, then the rest of the Bible is turned on its head. There cannot be a change in the book of life. Because Jesus is going to save every single one that was given to Him of the Father, and those that were given to Him of the Father were given to Him before the foundation of the world when their names were written in the book of life. Not one is going to be lost. It doesn't say that anyone is going to have their name blotted out. It says, if you'll be an overcomer, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. You are trying to look at a negative standpoint of the verse that it does not say that there are names blotted out of the book of life. But there is no evidence in the Bible of any such thing. It is encouragement to you to be an overcomer. Have you ever, have you ever been told on the job that if you will do such and such, I will give you this promotion? Have you ever heard about anybody that heard such a thing? Does it always come to pass when you're dealing with the people of this world? Sometimes, are you denied? Sometimes are you, are, is your name not put in for the promotion that you thought you were going to get because you did something? The Lord Jesus Christ is showing that He is of a different character than that. And if you'll be an overcomer, you are secure and safe with Him. And He will clothe you in white raiment, and He will not blot your name out of the book of life, but He will confess your name before His Father and before His angels. It's a positive statement. How many of God's elect is Jesus not going to confess before His Father? How many is He going to say, Father, I never knew this one. I know He's one of your elect, and I know His name's in the book of life, but I, I just don't like Him. It's not, that isn't what the verse is teaching. If you go and look at the other six places in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 where you are encouraged to be an overcomer, it'll be something different, but it'll be like this. And it's just the Lord Jesus Christ encouraging you to be an overcomer. See, He warns each church, you're doing this and you're doing this wrong. Repent, or else I will come quickly and judge you. But then, if you'll be an overcomer, This is your status. If you'll be an overcomer, he's encouraging everyone to overcome. And instead of worrying about getting your name blotted out of the book of life, why don't you just make your calling and election sure to get it in there the first time? Because it's not going to be blotted out. Much more can be said on each one of these. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. A sheep comes along and reads verses 20 through 22 first. Here's what they find. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. 
The little sheep reads those three verses and says, I've gone back and played in some of the sins that I repented of when I first began to follow the Lord, and therefore the end of my life is going to be worse than the beginning. It would have been better for me never to have known the way of righteousness. And they say to themselves, what else is in this passage? And they find verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. See? The little sheep says, see? I've gone back to my sins, private or public, it doesn't matter. I've gone back to my sins. It would have been better for me never to have known the way of righteousness. I'm on my way to hell. I was going to get to heaven, and now I'm on my way to hell. I return to my vomit, so the darkness of hell is for me forever. You are missing a very clear distinction in these verses between the false teachers and their victims. There is a they that promises others that are called them liberty. They go to hell because they're false teachers. Them are chastened. Watch. I've just shown you some pronouns that are here in these verses. Let's back up to verse... I'll show you in verse 19. Start at verse 19. While they promise them liberty. They are the false teachers. Them are the victims of the false teachers. They, back to the false teachers themselves, are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same as he brought in bondage. Those are reprobate false teachers that are on their way to hell. But there's a different group in that verse called the them. While they promise them liberty, these false teachers tell these children of God in the church that they can have liberty and and live any way they want to and God doesn't really care. Let's back up to verse 18 and see it again. For when they, there's a group of people that are speaking. They're the teachers. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they, the false teachers, allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those. That's a different group. Those are the hearers. Those are the victims. Those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. Clean escaped is clean escaped. These are saved brethren. There's two groups. There's a false teachers, there's false teachers in the first part of 18, and there are those that are led astray by them in the second part of verse 18 and 19. So when we back up to verse 17, and it says, These are wells without water, clouds that are carried about with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever, and it goes on, for when they speak. It's talking about the false teachers that can be traced all the way back to verse 1 where it says there were false prophets also among the people even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So there are these false teachers that are going to hell. The mist of darkness is reserved for them forever. They creep into the churches and through great swelling words of admiration, oh, the, the description, he, and I've preached this chapter to you before, it describes them all the way down through these verses from 1 to 17. They beguile unstable souls in verse 14. And they promise these Christians liberty in verse 19. They speak great swelling words of vanity in verse 18. They allure through the lust of the flesh. They are very polished. They are like Joel Osteen. They get many people to follow them. That it doesn't really matter how you live. God just loves all of you just the way you are. And you're, you can have your best life now. I appreciate John MacArthur who says that means they're all going to hell. Because how can you have your best life now unless you're going to hell? There's two groups here. So, what we have in verses 20 through 22 is the second group. The them. The victims of the false teachers. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they have a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves them from the world. And they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. 
It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now, can you think of an example of people that did this? How about the church? I'll give you two. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. The Old Testament. Did the Jews that were saved out of Egypt, were they given a great blessing of knowing God? Did God appear to them on Mount Sinai? And did they know Him? But what happened to them? What did they, they did this for 40 years. They wandered around in the wilderness until God killed every single one of them. Would it have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have heard the way of righteousness on Mount Sinai and violated it? They messed up their lives. Every single one got killed wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. At least they could have had their happy little home while they were slaves of Pharaoh down in Egypt. Let me give you a New Testament example. Would it have been, been would it have been better for the Corinthians not to have known the way of righteousness than to be weak, sickly, and dying prematurely? All that's talked about in these three verses right here are God's chastening judgment upon those who go back and play with sin. And when those go back and play with sin, they are going to end up with God's chastening on them. In the case of the Corinthians, it was weak, physical weakness, physical sickness, and physical death. It's not saying anyone's going to hell. It's saying that it had been better for them not to have known the right way of living and then to play with sin because the Bible teaches this rule. To whom much is given, much shall be required. Your judgment increases with the degree of understanding that you have of God's will for your life. So some little sheep that wanders in here, all they can see is it would have been, the, my end's going to be worse than my beginning. I shouldn't have ever known about Jesus Christ because I'm on my way to hell. You try to fit anyone else into those verses that make those verses make sense like that. This is God's explanation for us that there are false teachers that are going to hell, but they're victims who are led astray by these false teachers who were clean escaped from them that live in error. They were living the truth. They knew the Lord Jesus Christ. They were clean escaped from worldliness, but they get led back into it by lascivious grace preachers it would have been better if they had, had never known it because God's going to judge them for their lascivious living. My frustration is just time and the number of points left. This is an easy one, and I've been over it once before, but I, I want to show it to you again. 1 Corinthians 9. I haven't been over it in several weeks. 1 Corinthians 9. It uses the word castaway. And it scares sheep as well. Maybe two more. Very quickly. Cast away. 1 Corinthians 9.27 But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Was there any danger of Paul losing his eternal life? Not a chance. Was there any danger of Paul losing his effectiveness as a preacher of the gospel. Yes, that is all that is meant by castaway. We think of castaway of Jesus saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. A castaway is someone who's lost his usefulness to God. And there are ministers that have done that. There were kings that did that. Lot lost his usefulness. But is Lot still in heaven? Does the Bible tell us that Lot is in heaven? But was he a castaway in comparison to Abraham? Definitely. He wrecked his family. He wrecked his life. He was a castaway. King Saul, we don't know whether he's in heaven or hell, but he lost his usefulness as a king. And others have lost their usefulness. This loss of usefulness should be tied in with 1 Timothy 4.16, where Paul told Timothy, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this... Thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Eternal life is not in the picture. It was saving Timothy from a profitless ministry, and it was saving his hearers from a vain ministry. That's a castaway. The last one. First John chapter 5. We were quick on that one. We'll be quick on this one. First John chapter 5. 
You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, If you deny me, I'll deny you before my Father which is in heaven. That's scary. Have you ever denied Jesus Christ? Did Peter ever deny Jesus Christ? Where do you think Peter is right now? Is he one of the 24 elders? Did he get there after denying? I just love the word. We just got to read the whole thing and we'll be okay. You know the kind of denying Jesus Christ is under consideration? Where you stay in denial of the Lord Jesus Christ and reject and repudiate him without any repentance or confession of that sin. If you repent and confess of it, you'll be owned before your Father which is in heaven. If you're one of those ones that wants to repudiate Jesus Christ and deny him for the rest of your life, you don't really care about the assurance of eternal life anyway, so why even bring it up? You say, but I've, I've denied you, the little sheeps, and I'm not making fun of little sheep. I'm a little sheep. But at times I've denied Jesus Christ for the things that I've done. That is Titus chapter 1, and that is not what 2 Timothy is about. 2 Timothy is setting denying Jesus Christ in opposition to confessing him before men. You know, in works we all deny the Lord Jesus Christ. But have you ever got up and opened your mouth and said that you repudiate the Lord Jesus Christ? Peter did. Peter was forgiven. Peter's the worst case example that we would want to have, and he was forgiven. The last one is 1 John 5. It's not the last one, but it's the last one I'm going to cover with you. 1 John chapter 5, look at this text. Verse 15. Verse 14. This is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will... He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. If any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, And there is a sin not unto death. Wow. What's this sin unto death? Is it eternal death? Can you save another soul by your prayer for them where death is eternal death? No. Is this death to fellowship with God that you can, that you can't save a soul from? Because it says, if it's a sin unto death, your prayer can't help him. And you shouldn't even pray for him. But if we turn over just a few pages, does James chapter 5, 19 and 20 tell us that, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So there's a death to fellowship that we can save by correcting a brother. There's eternal death that we can't affect by our praying. Is there another death that we could consider right now for this passage? It's physical death. Now, if a brother see, if you see a brother sin a sin that is not unto death, so it's got to be a visible, identifiable sin that the Lord considers should lead to death. But now it is God's providential choice of when He's going to put someone to death for sinning. So how can we figure it out? So what in the world is this passage talking about? When did the Corinthians die? Why did some of them die for abusing the Lord's Supper? Some were sickly and some were weak. Who made that choice? God made that choice in His providence. And there's no man with enough insight or discernment of spirits to be able to figure out which one to pray for and which one not to pray for with some dying and some not dying. Do you follow in the complexity of the verse? But there's a simple solution. And this is the solution I believe. This is the solution I've taught you in the past. Do you remember what we learned last Lord's Day from Hebrews? Paul was writing Jews. And Paul was warning Jews that if they were to go back and repudiate the Lord Jesus Christ, go back to the animal sacrifice system of Moses, rejecting Jesus Christ and the the blood of the covenant wherewith they were sanctified, rejecting the spirit of grace, they were under God's judgment. And it was going to be death because God was going to destroy them in the city of Jerusalem. You say, is that what you're applying 1 John 5 as? Yes. On what basis? John wrote Jews just like Paul did in the book of Hebrews. How do we know that John wrote Jews? Because in Galatians chapter 2, we are told that the apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and Peter, James, and John 
were to the circumcision. The audience of John in this epistle is the same audience as Paul had in the book of Hebrews, and so we take the same position on the text. A difficult text, no doubt, but if you reason through the text, as we're supposed to reason through in the Word of God, it's a brother, it's a death, and it can't be eternal death. It's a death that we shouldn't pray for, and yet a death to fellowship we can save a man from. So it is a physical death. What physical death is God going to judge a man for because he sins that we're able to identify in advance and save his life? Do do you follow me on that? It is it is gaining life from God from a man that has sinned, but not sinned unto death. You have gained, you have saved him, but there is a sin unto death. All the sins that we sin and are able to confess to God through Jesus Christ, those are not sins unto death. God does not kill us for each one of those, or how big would this congregation be? But there was a sin unto death a fearful looking for of fiery judgment and indignation that would devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died, did, did what? Died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. Those are verses from Hebrews. I understand 1 John 5, 6, 16 and 17 the same way as Hebrews. This was a denial of the Lord Jesus Christ and going back to Moses' animal sacrificial system. And you know what the Apostle John says? Don't pray for him. A total repudiation of Jesus Christ and returning to Moses' system. But we should try to save them before that happened. But once they did it, don't pray for them. Every other time a man falls into a sin, it's not a sin unto death in that type of death, that physical death, that curse that was upon the nation. And we should pray for every brother that falls into sin because James would teach us, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. But there was one situation with one group of people because of the timing of this epistle and Hebrews that there was death promised. 1 John five sixteen and 17. When we look through all these problem texts, all we do is we come back to the fact that not a single one will be lost by those that God the Father gave the Lord Jesus Christ to save. And while the faith of some may be overthrown in 2 Timothy 2.19, yet it says the Lord knoweth them that are His. And we're thankful that God knows those that are His. They're in the book of life. The book of life has been opened in heaven, and our names will be found there. No name is blotted out of it. No name is taken from it. What we want to do is make our calling and election sure to prove that our names are indeed written in the book of life as one of the born-again saints of the Lord. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word to the comfort of little sheep that have been scared, but more than that, to the conviction of every single one of us to live in such a way that we make our calling and election sure, that we know that we are the brethren beloved of the Lord and that we are His elect. The Bible tells us how we can do that and we should apply how much diligence? Second, all diligence toward that goal. We should not walk out of here saying, I have heard the overall sound of 16 sermons, and the sound is that I can't be lost, that that we were taught eternal security, and that I'm going to heaven for sure. Don't deceive yourselves. Prove that calling. Prove that election by living the righteous lives that the elect choose to live. Have the work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope. Add to your faith the eight things the seven things that are added to faith there in Second Peter chapter 1. As he which hath called us is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Every part of our lives, let's be holy. Right. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.